0: Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandeville disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app.
1: This is a CBC Podcast.
2: Hello, I'm Neil Kirksal,
3: And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition.
2: Tonight. Hyperbole tactics. A federal judge says the Canadian government was not reasonable in invoking the Emergencies Act during the convoy protests.
3: Hard to place. A homeless outreach center in Charlottetown is granted approval to change location because of rising demand and divisions in the community.
2: Breaking ranks, a Democratic senator tells us it is time for the US president to put his principles where his mouth is when it comes to dealing with Benjamin Netanyahu.
3: Fixing to Win, Canadian documentarian Ben Proudfoot talks about his newly Oscar-nominated short, The Last Repair Shop, which shows how the people who mend instruments for public school kids in L.A. are also restoring faith.
2: The man behind the curtain, the late German songwriter and producer Frank Farian made Boney M. and Millie Vanilli household names, even if both creations were just ways to get Mr. Farian's own music into your household.
3: And clickbait. A French artist decided to use a lab setup to train rats to take selfies, and they loved it. Making him wonder how much humans actually resemble rodents. As it happens, the Tuesday edition, radio that wishes it had a rat's selfie confidence. The federal government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act to shut down convoy protesters was unreasonable and impinged on protesters' charter rights. That's the verdict of a federal judge who was considering a complaint by the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, the Canadian Constitution Foundation, and two people whose bank accounts were frozen. The Emergencies Act granted law enforcement extraordinary powers to remove and arrest protesters and gave the government the power to freeze the finances of people connected to the protests which the judge ruled was a violation of protesters' charter rights. Today, Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland said the government would appeal the decision.
4: We faced, as a country and as a government, an incredibly serious threat, a threat to the public safety of many Canadians, a threat to our national security, including our national economic security. We acted to secure and protect Canada and to secure and protect the national interest. I don't want to minimize the gravity of the actions we took. Neither do I want to minimize the gravity of the threat Canada faced. And to your question, I was certain after... A lot of deliberation with colleagues and many others that we took the right decision. I was certain at the time. I was certain when I testified before Rouleau, and I remain certain today. Thank you.
3: Deputy PM and Finance Minister Christian Freeland speaking today. Noah Mendelssohn aviv is the Executive Director and General Counsel of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. We reached her in Toronto.
2: Noah, you and your colleagues obviously disagree with the deputy prime minister and what the government has has said throughout all of this, but Justice Richard Mosley sided with you. Uh, And so I wonder, as you look at this judgment and read where the justice writes that this was uh, unreasonable, what the government did and led to an infringement of charter rights not justified under Section 1, what should listeners take away from this decision?
0: I think listeners should understand that their rights and freedoms are best protected through a democracy and through the ordinary democratic process. Emergency powers should only be used in the case of a serious and real national emergency. And we said and the court has now said that is not what happened in Ottawa. As difficult and painful as it was, it was a policing issue. It needed to be handled by police, but it was not a national emergency. It didn't happen across the country. It didn't raise threats of serious violence and in the meantime use of emergency powers are dangerous because they give government the power to pass laws without the usual critically important checks and balances to protect
2: all of our rights and freedoms the the judge said that that he was on the government side at, at the outset that you, the evidence that you and your colleagues brought forward changed his mind. He writes, quote, I was leaning to the view that the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act was reasonable. I considered the events that occurred in Ottawa and other locations went beyond legitimate protest and reflected an unacceptable breakdown of public order, end quote. He, he goes on from there, of course. But, But what did you present to change the judge's mind here?
0: We presented, oh gosh, um, a, a great deal of evidence and of legal argument about what is necessary and required under the Emergencies Act, what the meaning of that law is. Um, and, and I should say, by the way, that we were also concerned about what was happening in Ottawa. We we understood and supported the idea that the disruption and blockades had gone on for too long and needed to be addressed, that there were unlawful things that were happening, including intimidation, harassment of, of marginalized people. It wasn't that we that we had, uh, you know, any support for those kinds of activities. It's that we thought that needed to be dealt with on a policing level and not using emergency powers. And we're very pleased to see that when looking at the evidence and when doing a serious consideration of the legal arguments that were put forward, the federal court reached the conclusion, as we had from the very beginning, that this did not amount to a national emergency. As required by the Emergencies Act, it did not allow government to give itself those kinds of massive and dangerous
2: powers. The the justice said there are hallmarks of reasonableness, justification, transparency, and intelligibility. And he wrote that the government's actions did not meet that standard, those hallmarks. But what did the justice say and write about how protesters' rights were affected here?
0: Uh, I mean, he, he he said a great deal, and I'm still digesting parts of the decision. But I think, I think the important piece is that we all understand that protest is critically important. It's important because all of us, and in particular marginalized groups, need to be able to speak up for our rights and freedoms and those of others in this country. But that doesn't mean that we accept all protests. There are reasonable limits if they can be demonstrated and are justifiable in a free and democratic society, and they have to be as minimal as possible. And all of that is as an aside because the protests that happened in Ottawa, there's pretty much across the board agreement, was no longer reasonable. The blockades needed to be shut mm-hmm. down. There were there were aspects of the protests that were perfectly lawful. Parts of it that absolutely needed to be dismantled. The question that was at issue here was not about the protests in Ottawa. It was about the massive use of massive emergency powers. And the governments cannot take this power into their own hands unless it meets the high threshold
2: set by the Emergencies Act. As you know, this was a nightmare for people in Ottawa, a big concern for people watching all across the country, as well in ways big and small. So I know you're saying that that, that this is not something that you're condoning what was unfolding there. But but are That's you right, concerned I'm that people will? Condoning. But but people but people who were involved will take this as vindication.
0: I'm hoping that people in Canada are sophisticated enough to understand that we have laws to create checks and balances on the powers of government. And that is a separate question than whether or not that particular blockade and disruptive and worrying and concerning time in Ottawa should have been dismantled. We had no issue with dismantling a protest that had taken on that kind of troubling nature. Our concern was the use of the Emergencies Act. And the need for checks and balances that are built into a democratic system to be upheld as the federal court upheld it today.
2: You, you mentioned that this should have been left, to, you know, as a matter of policing. But if police weren't taking care of it and they were asking for help and saying we can't handle this on our own, what should have happened in your view?
0: Well, the the court addressed that as well. The court said that the Ottawa police hadn't addressed it, but other police services did come in. And ultimately, it was police who dismantled it, the kind of powers and orders that were created under the, under the Emergencies Act is not what was used to dismantle the blockade in Ottawa. What was used was ordinary policing tactics.
2: The government says it, it is planning to appeal this decision. So whatever happens from this point on, do you still feel that that you accomplished, as an organization, what you set out to here? I think
0: we accomplished something that is extremely important for every person in this country, and that is a message to government, to this government future governments, provincial governments. If you're going to give yourself massive emergency powers, it needs to be because there is a massive national or or appropriate emergency that requires it because emergency powers are dangerous. They're dangerous to democracy. They're dangerous to our rights and freedoms. And we have today and, and since February of 2022 put the government on notice that we are watching, that the people of Canada are watching. You cannot trample on people's rights and freedoms without there being accountability. That's what happened today with this
2: decision. Noah, thank you for your time. Thank you very much.
3: Noah Mendelssohn aviv is the Executive Director and General Counsel of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. We reached her in Toronto. <music> The situation in Gaza continued to escalate today, with Israeli forces encircling the densely packed southern city of Khan Yunus. The territory's health ministry says more than 25,000 people have now been killed in the fighting, and the UN is warning that over half a million Gazans face, quote, catastrophic hunger. Yesterday, 24 Israeli soldiers were killed, making it the deadliest day for Israel's army since the conflict began. And Israel's prime minister continues to reject any talk of a two-state solution. Benjamin Netanyahu's comments have put him at odds with one of his country's staunchest supporters, Joe Biden. And this week, the White House is reminding people of that.
4: It's the president's view that a two-state solution is the best path forward for people of uh, Gaza, for the Palestinian people, as well as the Israeli people. And there's many different interpretations. There's lots of different ways you can get at that uh, ultimate solution. Um, And the president as he has always done, kept an open mind about trying to pursue that. Now, he's also under no illusions of how difficult it's going to be to get there, particularly with this conflict going on in Gaza. So we're going to keep the discussions going with our Israeli counterparts. We're going to keep talking about it with Mahmoud Abbas. We're going to keep talking about it with our counterparts in the region in the hopes that more progress can be made.
3: U.S. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby speaking to reporters yesterday. Chris Van Hollen is a Democratic senator from Maryland. He says it's time the president's actions match his words. We reached him in Washington, D.C.
2: Senator Joe Biden says he still believes in a two-state solution. What would you like to see him do about it?
3: Well,
1: I think the president is absolutely right. Uh, We need to pursue a two-state solution um, as the only way to achieve a just and lasting peace. You know, over the years, uh, the two-state solution uh, has been used a lot as a deflection. And so there's understandably a lot of cynicism uh, around people Mm -hmm. talking about the two-state solution since we've been talking about it for 20 years, which is why it will require President Biden to go big and bold uh, in terms of not just saying that's the end Mm -hmm. game, but really taking leadership and and having a very practical path to achieving a two-state solution.
2: What does big and bold look like?
1: Well, first and foremost, it's obviously important that the conflict come to an end, uh, that there be a release of hostages, that there be a ceasefire. Mm -hmm. But when I say the president needs to be big and bold, he needs to take the lead in showing that there will be a state of Palestine, and set forth the negotiations which will get there in a a time certain for doing it. And, of course, that needs to be married, accompanied by um, normalization uh, of relations between the Arab states and Israel.
2: You recently visited the Rafah border crossing from Gaza into Egypt. What did you see there?
1: Well, I went there with my colleague, Senator Jeff Merkley, uh, to witness for ourselves uh, what was happening Uh, at the border. And we were very focused on the system for trying to get desperately needed humanitarian assistance uh, to people in Gaza. And it was very clear to us that the system was broken. Uh, There were a number of big pieces that need to be addressed. Um, First and foremost, what's called deconfliction, which is another word for saying that humanitarian workers need to have the confidence they can deliver humanitarian assistance to people who need it without being killed. Um, And Every international nonprofit organization that's operated worldwide for decades say they've never seen a more broken system um, and a more dangerous environment. Uh, The other thing we witnessed was just the very cumbersome um, process uh, for going through screening uh, at some of the Israeli uh, inspection uh, stations. And we went to a warehouse full of items that had been uh, rejected uh, things like water purifiers or medical kits for the delivery of babies. So these are things that could be fixed if there was a political will to do it.
2: Even in the face of what you've described, what you saw, despite the, the president's stated commitment to a two-state solution, as you, as you know, there's another message, that the White House remains steadfast in its support of Israel. The U.S. sends $3.8 billion a year. In December, the State Department approved the emergency sale of 14,000 rounds of tank ammunition to Israel, circumventing Congress to do that. So there are mixed messages here. What is going to change that?
1: Well, there are mixed messages, and many of us have uh, you know, said to the White House uh, and to the Biden administration that those mixed messages uh, are sending a signal to Prime Minister Netanyahu um, that you know, if on the one hand you're saying you know, you know, reduce civilian casualties, and at the same time, you bypass the notification process in Congress to rush more weapons uh, to Gaza, uh, obviously that sends a mixed message. Now, together with 18 of my Senate colleagues, uh, I've proposed an amendment to the supplemental request that President Biden has made for Ukraine and for. Israel and for some other countries, uh, we've proposed an amendment that would apply equally to every country uh, receiving military aid. And it has three very simple parts. One is every recipient of U.S. military assistance um, must comply with international humanitarian law. Second, every recipient must cooperate with U.S. and U.S.-supported efforts to provide humanitarian assistance uh, and then a reporting requirement uh, to ensure transparency and accountability the, the horror of October seventh um, has, of, of course, uh, n- n- not only created the situation we're facing in, in Gaza um, as Israel uh, takes actions uh, in in response. Uh, which, in my view, they're justified in doing. But you have to fight a just war justly, and what we've seen uh, is these excesses that you and I have been. Uh, talking about
2: and what you said about Israel's right to respond in the face of what happened on October seventh—is that what you would say to to assuage the concerns of of Jewish Americans that I'm sure you're speaking with and hearing from as well, but also people in Israel who who are concerned?
1: Well, I mean, look, the Hamas attacks of October seventh uh, were horrific, and I understand the the trauma. Uh, that Israelis are feeling. I mean, you know, I do believe there needs to be much more uh, focus on uh, the release of those hostages. And I agree with the loved ones who believe that Prime Minister Netanyahu has not prioritized uh, the return of their loved ones. Um, and I, I share their view that Prime Minister Netanyahu is continuing to put his own personal political ambition over. Uh, the objectives um, that need to be achieved, um, which is why I have been, you know, urging the Biden administration uh, to do more uh, and better exercise U.S. leverage uh, to see more results. You know, ultimately, um, we need to see the Netanyahu coalition recognize that it's not only the interests of the Palestinian people who are suffering, the innocent Palestinian people who are suffering, but also in the interests of Israel, the United States, and the region uh, to make sure that we get more humanitarian assistance in again, uh, the, 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 most, the, the, the best outcome here needs to be um, ceasefire and release uh, the hostages. Uh, But in the meantime, it is essential that the Biden administration uh, do more to address those other uh, major priorities.
2: Senator, I appreciate your time. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
3: Chris Van Hollen is a Democratic senator from Maryland. We reached him today in Washington. In a nondescript warehouse in downtown Los Angeles, a devoted team hunches over tubas with sticky valves, cracked violins, and keyless clarinets determined to fix what's broken. The city is one of the last to provide that service, free of charge, to its many thousands of public school kids. And for a lot of those kids, that means a lot.
5: If you told me five years ago that, like, oh, I'd be playing sousaphone, I'd be like, damn.
2: I think I think you're lying to me, bro. Cause that's not that's not it. <laughs> I don't know how to play
6: anything. I could never have at that age an instrument that expensive. I
5: used to beg my mom and my my, my dad. I used to beg them to buy me one, and they're always telling me the same thing. Me, me, o la tuba tú, which means
6: either a tuba or a you in the house.
3: That's from The Last Repair Shop, a short documentary made by Chris Bowers and Ben Proudfoot. Today, that film received an Oscar nomination. Mr. Proudfoot is from Halifax, and he's one of several Canadians who were nominated today, as you've probably heard, including Celine Song for Past Lives and Nisha Pahuja for her documentary, To Kill a Tiger. This is Ben Proudfoot's third nomination. We talked to him in 2022 when he won Best Short Documentary for his film, The Queen of Basketball. We reached him again today in Los Angeles.
2: Ben, congratulations!
3: Thank you so much, Neil.
2: <laughs> how did you find out?
3: Uh,
6: it was five thirty, a little after five thirty a.m. this morning in Los Angeles, and we were all down at the Los Angeles Unified School District musical instrument repair yeah. shop. And everybody gathered around, and uh, it was a great moment.
2: Uh, I, I just watched it uh, on your Instagram. It was a great moment, and to see the folks, some of the folks featured, how did they react?
6: It was, I mean, ecstasy, elation. I mean, if you can imagine, right, working away, toiling away for 10, 20, 30 years, fixing instruments, and then to suddenly receive the admiration and adulation of the world, I I can really only imagine what that must feel like for them. And it's so well-deserved.
2: I watched the film this morning. It's just under 40 minutes long. And I have to ask, how dare you and your co-director, Chris, make us smile and cry that much in 39 (laughs) minutes and change? How dare you?
6: (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, not sorry.
2: (laughs) I'm not sorry either. It was, I I mean, you know, got to keep journalistic objectivity. But it was a a (laughs) pleasure to watch. How did you both find out about this last repair shop?
6: Yeah, so our producer, Jeremy Lambert, gets the credit there. His his brother is a luthier, and this article about the repair shop for back from 2013 caught his eye, and it was about that there was a backlog at the repair shop. He brought it to my attention, and I was just drawn in by the photo. Fo- there were some photographs, and I was drawn in by this sort of north pole of musical instrument repair, and and was surprised and proud to learn that it was the last in the country that there was a time where there were many sort of great repair shops dotted all across the United States that would fix instruments for public school kids. And those had been closed and privatized. And this was the last big one. So that drew us initially to it. And then Chris, who's one of my closest friends, and I was working with him on a film called, I can to as a conversation. I brought it to him and he said, oh my God, I, I went to LAUSD and I didn't know about this. Oh, wow. And that's when the sort of collaboration began and it, it was so funny Steve the piano tuner in the movie yes. it ended up that he actually tuned the very there are 6,000 pianos in LAUSD <laughs> he tuned the elementary and middle school pianos that Chris Bowers learned how to play piano oh, on
2: wow.
6: which is um, just you know the coincidence is uh, startling
2: yeah. and and Steve's story uh in the film is so uh, incredibly moving. We won't give it away here, but Chris is a composer as well. And, and everybody talks yep. about the impact of that that one instrument, whether it was from you yes. know a thrift store or given to them by the school program, how it was a joy, but also a passport in many ways.
6: Yes, no, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, transformative, right? You hear it from the kids in the movie too, that it's a tool that as a little kid can give you power. It gives you a tool to express yourself it teaches you creativity and collaboration and sensitivity and those are all things that we need in our schools and in our world today and so this movie is a is a vehicle to get people to stand up and cheer for music and arts education
2: it's also a story you know through steve and patty and really everyone you featured the the reality of the american dream the myth of the American dream as well. Is that what you intended to tell as part of the story or did those emerge as you spoke to these folks?
6: You know, as time goes on, and I make more documentary films, there's obviously things that you go in thinking that the movie is going to be about. It always changes. And it's always rewritten a number of times. But first it's rewritten by the storytellers that you ask to be in the film. And it, it then becomes our job as filmmakers to advocate for their story and tell their story and all of its complexity and meaning. And it ceases to be my or Chris's opinion it starts to be theirs and their mm-hmm. perspective and worldview. We bring the craft of filmmaking to it, but it's really them in their essence. And I think the thread that ties all of these people together, despite uh, other than the fact that they're all repair people, is that they love what they do. There is love. That That is the secret ingredient almost as if they're making it for a family member or their younger self and that's what we wanted to capture with the film
2: that love comes through from from your conversations with them but also the young players as we, and we heard from from one of them I love that clip you know in in Spanish and yeah. the manuel. translation yes. manuel yes with <laughs> the young girl who opens the film i mean her face is just yeah, full of sure. so much joy uh, for her yeah <laughs>
6: a star is born a star is born yes can you imagine? she's going to be on the red carpet at the oscars i mean it's I've,
2: amazing have you spoken to her yet
6: Oh, yeah, she about... was there this morning, oh, she was okay. jumping she... up and down. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's so funny that you, at the beginning of the movie sort of posed the question, what would you do without your violin? Mm-hmm. And she says, you know, don't jinx me with that. And this morning before we found out, <laughs> I asked her, I said, what do you think, Porsche? And she said, don't jinx it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I said, yeah, You would say that. Yes.
2: <laughs> yeah, not a jinx, um, so, not yeah. a jinx at all. Uh, <laughs> you know. There was also um, the young girl who who plays piano, and and she gets so emotional, almost surprising herself at how much the instrument has meant to her. It was quite something. Yeah, quite something. Yeah,
6: I'm always moved by that too. And and was frankly, I mean, I I guess I forgot what it was like to be a kid, but I was just moved by how uh, self aware and complex their experience was as a young person. I, I don't remember it being having such a keen understanding of what was going on around me and all of them offered such understanding of what this musical instrument meant to them and their world and the complexities and contradictions that they lived in and and complications around them. I I was really moved by that. I know Chris was too. Um, And again, all the more important why somebody should have a musical instrument because, you know, as a kid, it's not like, how complicated the world is, is, is invisible to you. It is. And so to give them a voice and uh, an outlet for all the tightly wound emotions that are going on inside of you as a young person is essential.
2: Ben, I appreciate your time. Congratulations again.
6: Thank you so much, you'll Have a great day.
3: Ben Proudfoot is an Academy Award winning documentary filmmaker who was nominated for an Academy Award today for the short documentary, The Last Repair Shop. He's in Los Angeles. <music>
7: Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services.
2: Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this
1: is our first podcast.
7: CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen
3: app or wherever you get your podcasts. For over two years, Charlottetown's Community Outreach Centre has been helping people who are struggling with housing or making ends meet. And it's been doing that work in a former curling club. But last night, City Council narrowly approved a temporary variance that will allow them to move and operate out of a new location. One that staff say will help them better deal with increasing demand and ideally will help them silence the dissent that's been heard from within the community. Roxanne Carter-Thompson is the executive director of the Adventure Group, which has been operating the center since April 2022. We reached her in Charlottetown.
2: Roxanne, how are you feeling now about about the future of the people you're serving after last night's meeting?
7: Encouraged from a perspective that I believe we have the ability to be able to create some solutions and work together together on addressing the challenges that our community is facing.
2: It was a really close vote. The the mayor was the tiebreaker that is now, you know, allowing your center to move to Park Street there. What should we take away from how close that vote was?
7: You know, the landscape of our community has changed and we're talking about Prince Edward Island. This is Anne's land and our community has changed. I remember 10 years ago when I walked down Queen Street and I said, where did the homeless people come from? When did our province become a province that there are people sitting and panhandling on Queen Street? And I remember it hitting me pretty hard. And again, that was 10 years ago. And now that issue has grown significantly for Mm -hmm. a province that is so small.
2: So clearly not new to you, but the change is new for other people. But has that been creating tension in the community?
7: It's been creating concern and fear, and definitely uh, many differences of opinions and divisions in our community. And then for others, it's been creating action, in which they see that they need to roll up their sleeves and take action in order to help.
2: Yeah. Do you think this move will, will help everyone get on better better footing?
7: I think that it's a good strategy to really be able to work towards addressing the challenge because we're going to be moving into a place that's not as populated, so it will be better for those who live near the curling club. And then for the clients who utilize the services, we're going to be able to set up better security
2: I was reading that, you know, drug dealers have been targeting people who are using the services. Is that accurate? Right.
7: So it, it makes it really hard. for We can we can try to prevent from those individuals coming on property, yeah. but they're coming near the property. So then it's still impacting the clients that we're working with. Whereas if we move to Park Street, it puts us in a better position to, again, improve our safety practices and be able to protect individuals.
2: Let's talk a little bit more about the people that you are working with. Are the the issues for your clients... Are they the same as what we're seeing all across the country? What, what brought Charlottetown to this point?
7: Well, I think, you know, we've seen a, a greater need since the pandemic. Our grocery costs have gone up. Expenses have gone up. Our um, housing issues have increased where there's less housing to find, less places to rent. Rents have become exorbitant and there's rent evictions. There's a gentleman who's, in, who's been coming to our building, and, and uh, he was an engineer. And he said, I never saw that I was going to be in a position that I would have no place to live. And he's staying at a shelter, and this man is over the age of 65. This is clearly
2: personal work for you, and I'm sure, well, I can only imagine it's been exhausting in the lead up uh, to the vote and now planning this move You told our colleagues at CBC News Charlottetown that you didn't know supporting vulnerable populations was going to be this hard or that there was going to be this much division in your community. How are you handling all of that?
7: You know what? I work with an incredible team of people. We built a staff of qualified individuals who have worked in centres across the country. And we do have amazing support from some of the people in our community, and they have stepped up to support us in many ways. But that said, um, you know, I haven't seen the level of tension and unrest in this community. I've lived here since nineteen eighty nine We live in a province and when someone gets sick, you have a Kaylee, you have a fundraiser when somebody's house burns down, neighbors are dropping what they're doing and pulling together and getting you a place to live. So that's what I'm used to seeing here. But that said, people's physical safety. And their fear and concern, because there, there are some great concerns. Um, you know, there have been people whose houses have been vandalized and people who are, you know, they get up in the morning and they go out and there's somebody on their front doorstep. So I'm someone, and our organization and our board are people who believe that when there are issues, we work together and figure out how to solve those issues. Our own chief of police has said, you know, we can't arrest our way out of homelessness. So we have to look at what are some workable solutions that we can put into place that will help make our community a safer place for all. And I believe that we as a community can work together and, and solve the issues that we're facing. I really do believe that. And I think I'm hoping that others after seeing, yeah, it was tough last night. It went 5-5, and then the mayor had to break that tie. I, I hope that there are others who are looking at this and going, okay, what can I do? What can I contribute? How can I work together to make my community a safer place for myself, for my children? You know, I don't want to live in fear anymore. So how can we support each other?
2: Roxanne, thank you. I appreciate your time.
7: I thank
3: you, Neil, for inviting me here today. Roxanne Carter-Thompson is the executive director of the Adventure Group, which has been operating Charlottetown's Community Outreach Centre since April 2022. We reached her in Charlottetown. Tonight, residents of lille verte Quebec, are marking a sombre anniversary. It has been 10 years since a midnight fire destroyed the town's nursing home, killing 32 people and injuring 15 others. Even a decade on, hardly anyone in the small community is untouched by the memory of that day. They remember it for its tragic end, of course, but also for the heroism of those who responded and managed to rescue many of the facility's occupants. Philippe Lepissier runs the town's pharmacy, which also burned down that day.
8: I remember solidarity. I remember love. I remember um, the residents who helped other residents. Um, and some lives were saved during that day, obviously, and this is the positive that I remember.
3: Pharmacist Philippe L'Epicier speaking with the CBC's Peter Tardy this morning. Today marks 10 years since a fire destroyed his pharmacy in an adjoining nursing home in Lille-Vert, Quebec, killing 32 people. On that day, we spoke with Francois Lapointe, who was the MP for the region at the time. From our archives, here's part of that conversation.
8: The, the first firefighter that get, got there, within not even 15 minutes, when they, 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 they were facing fires through the roof, through the window, and, and the, the wind was very strong, and every volunteer's firefighters are telling me that they, they couldn't do anything. Even those who could make it very fast, on the event, when they when they got there, they could already see flames through the roof, through the window. They could help quite a few senior people on the other part, a little newer part. But most of them, they did everything they can. They went through very tough situation, like hearing the senior people asking for help and not being able to help them. Oh uh, so that's that's the kind of thing that they had to win, they had to go through uh, last night.
2: The firefighters, for them, it must have been just so. Hard to be so powerless to see that and not be able to do anything. Eh?
8: I've just met social worker who had to spend time with firefighter, volunteer firefighter, who were fighting, knowing that some members of their own family were in the building. So it's the social worker who had to tell them, please go home and take a break. It's the kind of situation that the the community here had to face all night. It's going to be a tough, a tough grief the next few days, and this feeling of grief for the community here will last quite long.
7: What are you able
2: to say? What can you possibly say to the people that you're spending time with now?
8: Oh, God's sake. First, I want to share how much they are admirable. There's one lady here, Mrs. Caron. She's from, uh, she's from from the council. She hasn't slept for 24 hours. She's still working making sure that the, the survivor has found the right place for their needs. Uh, there's, there's people from the, the Red Cross who, who, who hasn't slept for like 12 hours now. They are just amazing. The only one thing we can do, uh, the people that represent the, the area here, is that we know the grief will be tough. It's too many people, too many lusts in a situation that is very, very dramatic. The grief will be tough, and the only thing they can be assured is that we will, we will hang on, we'll stick with them as long as, it, as they need any type of help.
3: Former Quebec MP François Lapointe speaking with former As It Happens host Carol Off the morning after a devastating nursing home fire in Lille-Vert, Quebec, 10 years ago today. It is no secret that people like to take photos of themselves. We take millions of selfies every day, and sometimes it feels like you're clicking like on every single one of them on Instagram. We get it, Alan. You got your chest waxed, but it's not like there's a high bar for entry. All you need is a phone with a front camera and an opposable thumb. But What if you didn't have either? What if you were, say, a rat? Well Augustin Ligne decided to give two rodents a helping hand so they could take selfies too. He's an artist. We reached him in Paris.
2: Augustin, what made you want to do this? Why did you think the world needed selfies of rats?
5: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the world needed because um, I think it's to reflect our behavior, how we behave online, how we take images and why we take images and why we uh, interact with different devices like phones mainly and apps.
2: Yeah, Uh, and social media. So you're saying that, that rats... They're just like us, or we're just like rats, whether we like it or not.
5: Yeah. I mean, it's a bit like I want to play with this uh, uh, in between and with this, like, who is who. Yeah.
2: Well, let's talk about how you how you conducted this research mm-hmm. and, and took these photographs. Describe how mm-hmm. your, your Skinner Box photo booth worked.
5: So basically, it's a big... Uh box like a photo booth where like inside there is a a computer there is a camera and flashlight and uh, there is like a sugar dispenser so basically i put my two rats inside this box i build because they're very clever and curious they discover like when they push a lever or a button they have a small reward a small piece of sugar and then they start to associate like an action to uh, pleasure and they start to play more and more with it and this was called the training phase. And after that, when they were well-trained, I changed the code and the reward became random. And basically, at this time, you you understand and you can see that they don't push the button anymore to, to have a reward, but because they associate this to pleasure, you know, and they have dopamine every time they push the button. They were not taking the sugar okay. anymore, even when it was, like, uh, give by the machine to them.
2: Why do you think they kept doing it? Vanity?
5: Yeah, that because like it's it's based on a on a behavior experiment of the mm-hmm. 50s and it's called like operant conditioning. So basically their brain associates this action to pleasure and then the the brain delivers the reward by itself, you know, dopamine. And uh, that's why they keep going because for their body it's like pleasure every time they push the button, they have pleasure inside their brain.
2: Were they posing from what you saw? Were they looking at, at their own photos, changing their pose, their <laughs> angles?
5: No, 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 no. I try, I try, I try to show them their images on the mm-hmm. screen, like so. They, directly after they took the picture, they can see their own mm-hmm. selfie or their own self-portrait, but they they don't recognize themselves. You know?
2: Okay, interesting. How did you choose the rats when you went to the pet store? I mean, were, what drew you to these particular creatures?
5: So basically, when uh, when I start to think and conceptualize the project. I asked a friend of mine who is a researcher and he work in a scientific lab mm-hmm. and basically give me as an advice, you should take two times the same gender, either two female, either two male, mm-hmm. because if you mix them, you're going to have like after months, tons and tons of baby rats.
2: <laughs> Science. So, yeah. Yeah.
5: Yeah. So basically he advised me to take two female because they are more clever, but was just available mm-hmm. two male. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't know if they are broader but. They grew up together, so I took I took them in a pet shop.
2: Yeah, and then you na- you went a step further and you named them after yourself and your brother, Arthur. <laughs> yes, one
5: was yeah exactly one was like kind of my alter ego, and the other one my brother alter ego, let's say.
2: So, what were Augusta and Arthur, uh, the rats, yeah. like as artistic collaborators, models, muses, exactly. even? Yeah.
5: yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, they are more like collaborator. Like we do this project together, and I was more like managing their own behavior and their own like performance for me they're really like performers you know they perform for the camera and for the action of doing it and the apparatus the booth is just here to capture them performing a certain action
2: do you have a favorite of of the selfies
5: Uh, depends depends on the day of the mood Mm. sometimes i like the dramatic ones (laughs) sometimes the more cute it's, a cute uh,
2: rat? I know there's there's different opinions on this. A cute rat is a hard sell for me, but you see cuteness and cleverness there, yeah?
5: I mean, on the image, for me, they look cute. You know, they have, like, really interesting body structure and the shape of the hand and the moustache and the mouth.
2: <laughs> was one more clever?
5: Uh, yeah, I think the white one was a bit like the leader of them and the more clever, because basically the white one... He destroyed two times the machine Ah. that I have to rebuild from scratch because they're they're really clever.
2: Oh, is that Augustin or Arthur?
5: Yeah, it was my uh, alter ego.
2: Why was he breaking the machine? Maybe he was trying to quit selfies.
5: Yeah, I mean, because they're curious. They just want to explore everything. And I was not, um, I mean, you know, I was making mistakes. So I was learning by also their behavior and how they do things.
2: What do you think we should learn, if anything, from Augustin and Arthur, the rats, not the brothers?
5: We are um, big tech companies, design our behavior, but we can still have fun and enjoy it, even though it's like not our choice. Somehow, you know, we are like kind of designed to behave in a certain way, but it's, I think it's kind of still fun, you know.
2: What happened to Augustin and Arthur after your your art project with them was complete? Where are they so now?
5: After my. Our project—they uh, went to my mom's house in oh. South France when they're like they are the regular rat life, let's say, and uh, retirement. That, yeah, like some kind of retirement, and because also like was quite this project was made quite some time ago, so mm-hmm. like they passed away oh, uh, my lately. But yeah, I mean rats can live two to three years maximum, and they are like buried in the garden of my mom oh. next to each other.
2: Well, their legacy will live on, Augustin. <laughs> thank you. Thanks to you. Bye-bye.
5: Bye.
3: Bye. Augustin Ligné is an artist. He's in Paris.